All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to be speaking to you from New York City on this, the 23rd day of October, 2018. And I do like to remind you each week, I am the author of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can subscribe to that letter by going to miningstocks.com. Uh, or you can call our office here in New York during normal work hours, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Also, I'd like to remind you um, to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's excellent letter, uh, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? ChenPicks.com. ChenPicks.com is the place to go for that. Some interesting news today. One of Chen's longtime favorites, Pan Orient, came out with a an oil discovery, and uh, Chen was pretty excited about that when I talked to him earlier in the day. Uh, subscription to Chen Lin's letter will help you keep up with that and many of the biotech stocks that he's really made a lot of money uh, for his subscribers in. We also, of course, like to uh, remind you of Michael Oliver, who will be with me in just a moment. Uh, OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, and you can sign up there for a special, well, it's a, it's a a new service uh, for gold and silver investors, uh, $299 a year, a very reasonable price for all of the excellent work that Michael does, and uh, he'll be talking to you in a moment or two about gold and some other markets of importance. Um, we'd like to bring out uh, the point, uh, the fact that uh, the Metals Investor Forum that I'll be participating in is coming up on November 8th and 9th, and there still are a few spaces, I'm told, left for investors to attend. Um, but uh, it doesn't cost you anything. They actually feed you and give you a lot of great information, uh, but you do have to sign up because space is limited. So if you're in the Vancouver area on November 8th and 9th, you may want to sign up. Just uh, your name and email address, I think, is all that's required. Go to jtaylormedia, jtaylormedia.com, and sign on. Just click on the banner for the Metals Investor Forum uh, and uh, fill out the form, and um, I hope to see uh, many of you there. Uh, I do want to thank you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I also want to invite you to continue sending your comments along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. And our sponsors are always important to mention because they make this show economically possible. Great Bear Resources, Noble Resources, Sandstorm Gold uh, Limited, Triumph Gold, Gold Mining Inc., Uranium Energy, and Klondike Gold Corp. Those are our sponsors for this week's show. 
Our title today's show, The Credit Cycle is on the Turn. Ryan Gerdersky visits for the first time, Alan, uh, Alistair McLeod, and of course, Michael Oliver, as most often is with us once again, thankfully. Alistair uh, says we're nearing the end of the current credit cycle that began after the 2008 collapse. Banks sell treasuries and make loans as interest rates and wages rise to uh, increase the fears of inflation and still further interest rate increases, ultimately higher rates lead to an equity bear market. Indeed, there have been signs over the last couple of weeks that uh, a the bear is beginning to growl. But might the end of the current cycle be even more profound and far more injurious to unsuspecting investors than the 2008 episode? Well, that's uh, certainly one of the things we want to talk to Alistair about. Um, and of course, right now, uh, as far as... Um, uh, Americans are concerned. One of the big issues is the uh, upcoming elections, the midterm elections. Uh, and so I have asked Ryan Gudersky, he's a young man who lives down the block from my home here in Queens, uh, who is a, he's also a frequent guest on Fox television, both the business channel and Fox News channel. I want to get his take on, on what's going on and, and what the prospects are for the Democrats picking up and gaining control of the legislative body. Ryan really uh, is very, very informative. He knows as much as anybody I see on, on television. Uh, some of the bigger name people that you find at Fox, uh, Ryan is right there with them, and I'm really pleased that he can join me. He'll be with me after the first commercial break in just a few minutes from now. Then, of course, there are the markets that are taking place right in front of us today. Wow, some really big moves today. I saw the Dow was down some 500 points earlier in the day. It's really rallied back, um, getting close to break even the last I looked. Uh, so um, I'm glad to say that Mike Oliver is with me right now to comment on that and some of the other important Mike, our, uh, markets. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Good to be back. Interesting times. My goodness, I wake up this morning, I look at the gold market is up about 18 bucks. Uh, and, you know, the, the, all the Asian equity markets got creamed during the night. And the futures are looking very weak in the U.S. I uh, saw so the Dow was down 500 points. I think the S&P was down through some key areas that you've noted in your uh, in your work, um, where, where do you see it now? I think the uh, top is in the as far as the U.S. stock market goes. I think the top is in. Period. Exclamation point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, it's going through layers of structural breakage. In other words, it's, it's like something very heavy falling through floors. You know, and it it, it it snags up on each floor. We predefined them fairly well. We first got bearish. Breaking twenty nine fifteen, uh, there was uh, some major momentum breakage that occurred there, and it, it suggested that we'd go down to the next floor. The next floor was around this twenty seven sixty level that we've been playing around for the last two three weeks. So the weekly closes, they're all within a couple points of each other. Right now we're twenty seven fifty or forty. I think the break is is underway, but it'll occur in layers. There'll be sharp rallies, and I don't think a real clean, clear bear market will become obvious to most investors until next year. Mm -hmm. In other words, they still view these sharp breaks as buying opportunities. Uh, We argue now that they won't make new highs anymore. Mm -hmm. Over the last, since 2016, every time you have a sharp break, you go and make a new high. This Mm -hmm. last new high that we made, uh, which was in August, September on the S&P, above the high of January, marginally, by the way, uh, was grotesquely non-confirmed by any momentum metric we've got. And therefore, it's qualitatively a different type of high than all the other highs that have occurred in the zigzag process since mm. 2016. Yeah, in other mm. words, this one's different. 
And I think the downside uh, is, is going to go in layers. There will be teasing rallies very sharp like we're getting today or even a couple weeks at a time. Uh, but ultimately, I think we're going a lot lower. I suspect that the low for this year is probably below 2,400, not oh. the 2,750 lows we saw in February. Mm-hmm. And that once we do that, the market will then rally back up by year end or early next year to around where we are today at 2,700 area. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some reasons for that, uh, yet again, drop, then rally. Uh, and I th- but we, we're pretty convinced that the top is in, it's a layered decline, and you re- really won't get obvious to most people until next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some te- te- technical reasons for that. But in the mm-hmm. process, it's, it's doing damage each layer that it breaks, even if it does have a rally after breaking certain levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a staircase. So at some point, Michael, it will dawn on people that, that there will not be any new highs anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, and they'll throw in the towel and look for somewhere else to go to make money, I yep. suppose. And I think they're already doing that uh, to some extent. Uh, mm. uh, it's interesting, too, this week. We had a, an interesting divorce. We've been watching very closely, of course, in our gold, silver, and, and mining report, to our new product. Yes. We're watching that narrow sector of commodities, which we think is the most important sector. And while they made lows in um, August, gold did, and silver, and then we turned up, and they've turned up uh, not so much to excite people, but for us, it's been some good structural momentum action to the upside, indicating the low of August was it. It was a mm-hmm. secondary major low, and we're, we're working our way higher now. But while, for instance, today, XME, which is the ETF for uh, uh, basic metal miners primarily, uh, was down sharply with the market. Meanwhile, GDX, the gold miners and GDXJ, were up uh, rather nicely opposite mm-hmm. to the base metal miners. So we think the metals are also, uh, whereas copper has been real strong for the last couple of years in percentage terms from its low to its rally high, I think that mainly the money is now going to start moving out of that because that's economically sensitive type metal. Yes. I think it's going to move into the monetary metals because I mm-hmm. think the crisis we're going to have is, is not so much economically based as a, fin- a, f- a fiscal problem, a debt problem, and a monetary problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much a business cycle type problem. And that's mm-hmm. why I think gold will shine much in the coming few years. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, I think it might be the ma- biggest move in the history of the gold market that we see mm-hmm. in the next years. And that's why we started the, that research report uh, right. focusing on that area. Right, right. And and you, of course, also a comment on individual stocks, too, uh, uh, GDX stocks right. and... And some GDXJ yeah. stocks as well, right? Right, right. Yeah, no, you know, there's a big list there. If you look inside GDXJ mm-hmm. or you look in GDX of the holdings, uh, mm-hmm. there are various weightings to these uh, companies and so forth. And we don't try to fool around with the fundamentals, the earnings, and the, you know, the ore quality. This is the kind of stuff that you, you do very well, Jay. But we mm-hmm. don't. We're not good mm-hmm. at that. Uh, but we are good at our own mode of technical analysis. And what we try to do is ferret out uh, among the various symbols in each of these ETFs, which ones are more likely to be the better picks within the ETF rather than suggesting just blanket by the ETF? Uh, there's a lot of investors who'd rather pick the stocks. And so what we do is, our, with our methodology, try to uh, have a process of selecting these symbols <clears throat> so that investors can then move into them rather than the broader ETF. You know, you mentioned you think uh, we're looking more of a monetary or a credit type of a problem rather than an economic problem. And this certainly, I think, will be in, 
in agreement with what Alistair McLeod will be talking about later in today's show. But with with respect to uh, both the silver and gold, of course, silver is more of a of an industrial metal than gold is. Both of them are monetary metals, however. So mm-hmm. might this maybe pretend for? I mean, usually when you have a bull market in gold, silver outperforms gold. Yes. In a bear market, we, silver we, goes down less. But if we're really looking at a monetary issue, then maybe uh, maybe that rule doesn't hold as much as it used to. Maybe gold, maybe silver doesn't perform as well relative to gold as it has in past cycles? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to go with the, 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 our technical view is that not necessarily at the beginning of the move will silver beat gold, although it did in the first wave up from mm-hmm. the lows of 2015 through mid-2016, if you recall that rocket ship that both yes. metals went up. Silver went up far more, sort of GDX, yeah. than yeah, did true. gold. But yeah. it's only lately that gold's been hanging in the upper half of the range of the last few years, where silver and GDX went down to more to the lower part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the snapback will favor the miners, and I think the snapback will favor silver over gold. Not that gold isn't the mama. I mean, it is mm-hmm. the core market. So as it uh-huh. goes, they will go. But uh, on a percentage basis, I suspect silver will, will outpace gold at some point in the early part of the, the next leg up. Uh, it's not evident right now. In fact, silver just made a new high in terms of the number of ounces in ratio to gold, uh, mm-hmm. new high for several years. Uh, oh, okay. Occurred, you know, a week or two ago, which mm-hmm. is disfavoring silver, saying that more ounces to buy one ounce of gold. But I think that's probably a peak, and it's going to start gaining uh, the ratio back. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless of, I understand, you know, it does have an industrial aspect to it, but mm-hmm. I still think it is a monetary metal. Absolutely. No question about that. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Always a pleasure having you with us to uh, bring you. us your latest work on uh, from a technical basis. Uh, always appreciated. Thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to have Ryan Gadurski with us for the first time. Uh, Ryan is a neighbor of mine, lives here in Queens with me, but he is often seen on Fox uh, Business and on Fox, uh, on the other Fox channel, the Fox News channel, and uh, he has a lot to say about politics and uh, how the elections are shaping up, the midterm elections coming up. So can't wait to hear what Ryan has to say right after the break. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Turning hard times into good times is brought to you in part by Sandstorm Gold Royalties. Sandstorm Gold Royalties is a different kind of gold company. They purchase royalties on select mining operations and receive a percentage of the revenue in return. Sandstorm now has a portfolio of over 185 gold royalties around the world. See how gold royalties differ from other gold mining investments at sandstormgold.com. That's sandstormgold.com. Sandstorm Gold Royalties trades on the TSX as SSL and the NYSE as SAND. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Ryan Gradersky. Ryan, is a, he's born and raised in New York, and he's been politically active since his teens. He is a frequent guest on Fox News, Fox Business, and many radio shows nationwide and writes for the Washington Examiner. Um, he is a, really active in supporting and working for local candidates that he believes in. Uh, and he is acutely aware of American politics on the national scale as well, and that's what we want to talk to him about. I actually learned to know Ryan uh, about 10 years ago when I just moved into this particular place in Queens, and I noticed there was a sign for Ron Paul uh, on my block, <laughs> yeah. and I was, I, was, I was kind of surprised. And so I put a note in his mailbox and says, hey, listen, I, I know Ron Paul. He comes on my radio show from time to time. And so Ryan then contacted me, and we've become friends and neighbors ever since and so glad that, uh, so glad that you could join me today Ryan thank you for having me on Jay. I really appreciate it and I really appreciate it we met up at uh, at a coffee shop a, a restaurant down the street a couple of weeks ago or so uh, a couple of times and I'm re- I've really been impressed with your knowledge of national politics and uh, you really are immersed in this this is your love isn't it uh, this is my uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say love I'd say this is my burden to bear you know what it is uh, I, my you know I have friends and family who ask me all the time why why do you why are you involved in politics and I always sit there and say you know why is it none on none you know mm-hmm. I've, done, I've, I've not done it for some time period and I've always ended up coming back to it mm-hmm. you know whether I like it or not so it is it's what you're drawn to I guess yeah maybe it's uh, you, you feel passionate about things you believe in. Uh, and you must do something about them, and uh, this is probably your calling. This is what uh, uh, what the good Lord made you for, I suspect, and that's what you're what you're doing. So, so listen, um, you know this 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 hatred towards our current president, I think, is unmatched, at least in my lifetime. And I go back a lot longer than you do, Ryan. I can remember Richard Nixon's days and the the hatred and the vitriol towards him. Uh, now. That seemed to really mobilize the Democrats, the Democratic base, for for a while, and I suppose still is, because there still seems to be a lot of venomous attitude towards the president. Then come along the Kavanaugh hearings, and and that seemed to charge the batteries of Republicans somewhat. What is your read right now in terms of the direction of this election? Uh, Do you you see the Republicans still retaining more energy uh, since the Kavanaugh hearings, or do you think that might be wearing off, or, or how do you... How do you see things playing out here? Well, it wore off. Well, I mean, if you look at, there's a lot to look at. So if you look at polling, it wore off a little bit. If you look at early voting um, sample size, it's up a decent, a decent amount. Um, it's just a question, uh, and it's also different in different places. So there was a poll, there was early voting done in uh, Nevada and in the rural counties where Trump won by 40 or 50 points. Mm-hmm. Um, turnout was triple what it was in 2014. Uh-huh. Um, and if you look at other places like North Carolina, the Democratic voting edge is very, very high. Um, in mm-hmm. Florida, the Republicans have like a 55,000 vote early voter 
um, advantage, even despite you know polls like Quinnipiac, which that's a garbage polling firm. I won't even cite them. But CNN, which usually does very good polls, believe it or not, had had it, the Democrat winning the governorship by 12 points, which is the biggest lead of any poll. Um, so despite them saying they'll win by 12 points, Republicans have a 55,000 voter advantage in early turnout so far in Florida. I mean, there is two weeks to go, so there's plenty of time for something to change, but that is, you know, where it is currently. Um, I think that there's probably, I would say about an 80 to 85% chance of Republicans retaining the Senate and maybe about a 25 to 30% chance of them retaining the House. Wow. Okay. Well, that's, uh probably a lot better than uh, for Republicans than it was before Kavanaugh, right? Yeah, no, no, certainly Kavanaugh did, did amp up people and did energize people in a way that they hadn't before that. It would have been a lot lower had Kavanaugh not been in, in the picture. Um, basically, when it comes down to it, when the Senate, when it comes down to the Senate, I'll say, I'll talk about that for a second because it's a little easier. Yeah. Um, there are 10 Democrats running in seats that in, in states that Trump won, and only one Republican running in, this, running in a state that Hillary won. That would be Dean Heller running in Nevada. Um, there are two Republican seats that are in jeopardy, one being Nevada, being the seat I just mentioned, Dean Heller, and the other being in Arizona, being an open seat that Jeff Flake used to hold, that he's now retiring, uh, mm-hmm. basically being pushed out of office because he's so unpopular. Um, in Nevada, I think Dean Heller does have a very good chance Early turnout in the rural counties is very, very strong. He's held many rallies there. Um, uh, the Republican governor, gubernatorial candidate is very uh, is been polling ahead of the Democrat recently, um, Adam name. He's the attorney general. He's running for governor. His his poll numbers have been pretty decent, um, and it's somewhere that Republicans could could kind of stop themselves from being overwhelmed if it's a blue wave election. The other mm-hmm. being in Arizona. Now, Arizona had been trending Democrat for the entire year, um, and the Democratic candidate, Kristen Sinema, just recently had a week or two weeks, rather, full of um, old videotapes resurfaced where she bashed yes. the state of Arizona. She, she called Arizona the meth lab of democracy. She said, you know, don't be a, don't be a bad state like Arizona. Don't be crazy like Arizona. Um, she, another tape resurfaced of her telling Americans that they should join the Taliban. Um, <laughs> so... So that 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 has really kind of hurt her. So those are the two states in question. They're both toss-ups right now. Certainly Republicans could win them as likely as they could. Uh, there's a better chance of winning Nevada, but they could win them both or they could lose them both. As mm-hmm. far as the Democratic-controlled states. And there's also, sorry, one more thing. There is Tennessee, which was a, an election that Republicans thought they could lose a few months ago. That looks fine. It looks like um, Marsha Blackburn, the Republican congressman running for Senate, is going to win that election. Mm-hmm. So the Democrats right, so that are up. You, okay, sorry. go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, yeah no, I'll tell you really briefly. Of the, of the Democratic states, there's only a few handful that are really competitive at this point. It would be Montana, uh, North Dakota, Missouri, Indiana, and Florida. Um, and Republicans are likely to win North Dakota. And I would say there's a 50-50 chance of, of Missouri and uh, Montana, Indiana, and Florida are all about a third, a 30, uh, 35% chance. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a reasonably good chance that uh, Republicans could pick up a couple of seats in the Senate? Yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's as good of a chance of them having 50 seats as them having 54 seats. 
So that would be a big difference. So Florida is a gamble. Um, uh, Indiana, there's polls saying they're winning or losing. There's not a lot of public polls, though, in, in Indiana. And Montana, there's not a lot of public polls. But either one, and actually Don, Donald Trump Jr. is all over the state of Montana right now campaigning for the Republican. So there's, there, there's a pretty good chance of those three states going. Missouri, once again, is 50-50, but the Republicans really have an operation out there. Uh, and they have to just hold Nevada and Arizona. If if the generic ballot moves over maybe a point or two, the whole entire game will be changed, and they'll probably end up with 53 or 54 Senate seats, which is what they basically need because 2020 is not the best map for Republicans, and they're probably going to lose two seats. So they do need to win. Um, they do need to, to hold whatever seats they have right now. Mm-hmm. All right, so, and the House is, uh, you give only a, a 20, 25% chance of the Republicans hanging on to the House, huh? Yeah, there's, uh, if I could break it down, and I'll try to do it short, because I know that there's yeah. 435 seats. Um, or if, if you're a Republican donor and you want to donate to a seat that's going to matter, you would look at Maine, second congressional, the only uh, Republican in New England. It's a very important seat to win. Claudia Tenney in New York 22, John Faso in New York 21. Dave Brad, Dave Brad, Dave Brad in Virginia 7. So important to keep Dave Brad seat, especially if you are somebody who likes limited government and maximum freedom. Dave Brad is right. the most important candidate. Libertarian. Uh, New, uh, New Jersey 3rd, Virginia 5, uh, Florida 26, 27. Uh, Culberson seat out in Texas. I don't know the number for that. Kansas is uh, 2nd Congressional District. Uh, of, uh, and uh, the New Mexico third seat, and then probably out in California, you'll look at California's 48 and 35, and Washington uh, six. So those are the seats that will real, and Illinois six. Those are the seats that are really going to tell us at the end of the day how Republicans, if they're going to win or not. Those dozen seats are going to be the factor if the Republicans hold on by three or four or five seats or if they lose by, you know, 30-seat-plus wave. All right, help us, uh, because we have limited time. I have so many more questions, but limited time. Help our listeners know what the difference will be. If the Democrats gain control of the House, and especially if they can train, could gain control of both branches of the, of the legislature, what will that mean for the Trump presidency? Well, if they gain both branches, it's bad news, especially with, two members of the Supreme Court being over the age of 80. It means we're going to hold all the new judgeship appointments. That'll mean that would be terrible. Um, but I don't think they're going to lose control of the Senate. If they lose control of the House, though, Robert Mueller is already saying that his investigation, which is coming to a close right after the midterm election, um, he's saying don't expect a big collusion story because there was no collusion. Um, yeah. So if no matter what, though, if he hands a 600-page document of a Republican Democrat that they control Congress, Maxine Waters will have a chairmanship. I mean, she will sit there and use it to try to impeach the president. That's incredible. Uh, I I just had to chuckle, though, last night. I watched part of President Trump's uh, speech uh, from a a rally. I guess it was was, was really funny. I mean, (laughs) it was so good. He talked about... the taxes and uh, the taxes, uh, you know, when people kick the bucket is the word he used. When you says, if you don't like your kids, don't give them anything. But if you like them, we're going to have something for you. And when you kick the bucket, and when you kick the bucket, your kids can have what you want them to have <laughs> under our yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's true. I mean, he gets the idea of freedom way better than the Democrats do. I mean, and it's a, 
it's just it's so it's so insane right now. And the, the biggest problem with the Trump white presidency that I have, as somebody who supported Trump since the day he ran for office, is he's hired so many terrible people into his White House. And I just I'm very hopeful that if he uh, the next six years that certain people will go and will be replaced by better people, which are is right now not been the case so much. All right, with uh, with a minute left. Um the equity markets got hit really hard today. Um, Michael Oliver is suggesting he doesn't think we're going to see the real bear market until next year. He thinks we'll see some more lower lower prices in, in the Dow this year yet. But then he thinks we'll rally, and it won't mean until next year that the people really realize that we're in a horrible bear market again. How much do you, do you think um, the equity markets will play? Uh, so, you know, supposing that we have a weak equity market between now and, next, and two weeks from now, how much of an impact will stock prices have on on this election? I mean, if if, if the Dow plummets by over a thousand points on any given day in several days in a row, and we see a tremendous trajectory downward, uh, you know, if it goes under twenty thousand, I think we're going to have a serious conversation. But the fact yeah. that it's raised by more than thirty percent since Trump became president. I think that uh, ebbs and flows are kind of ignored because the general trajectory of the economy has been pretty good um, mm-hmm. since he became president. Yeah, I, I would agree with uh, that. Would that would make sense? Certainly, would like to know your thoughts on uh, on the caravan that's coming up. It seems to me something that's really been set up uh, to uh, try to make Trump look bad. It's it's ten thousand people at this point. There, okay. I know we have like thirty seconds left, so I'll just run down three quick things yeah. that Trump could do. One, have uh, his he should fire Kirsten Nielsen from DHS because she doesn't know what the hell she's doing. Secondly, set up ten cities along the border to house every ten thousand person. Third, put the military take them from Afghanistan and put them inside the Mexican border so they cannot reach um, cannot reach the interior of the United States. And fourth. He should halt all visas from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador until they can get a hold of it. Not only will we repel your illegal aliens, but we will halt any legal immigration coming from your country as well and put real pressures on those governments as well as Mexico. Because unless Mexico starts getting with it and starts working with it with us on this issue, it will never get solved. And we really need a, a DHS secretary right now who knows what they're doing. And Kirsten Nielsen does not, has no clue what she's doing. Well, it all makes a lot of sense to what you're saying to me, Ryan, because uh, what is it? It's supposed to be defense, and we have all our soldiers in Afghanistan, and now we have something like uh, the Romans yeah, the, had. The, the, the barbarians. On, on a stupid war that should have ended years ago. And we have the barbarians at the gate, and but we don't worry about that. We have our troops around the world. Well, in any, in any event, yeah. we are out of time. Ryan, thanks for joining me. It's really a pleasure yeah, uh, hearing uh, I, I realize it's your burden, uh, but uh, I, I thank God that you're doing what you what you've been designed to do. It's your passion, <laughs> and you got to go with that. You know, you got you've got to go yeah. with that, Ryan. So uh, thank you so much for being with us. Well, folks, don't thank go away you. because right after the break, we'll we'll be with Alistair McLeod. He's going to talk about the impending end of the current credit cycle and what that may mean for your pocketbook and mine. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district scale free gold mountain gold copper project in Yukon. 
with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Gold Mining Inc., ticker symbol G-O-L-D on the TSX and G-L-D-L-F on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again one of our more frequent guests, Alistair McLeod. Alistair, uh, as you know by now, most of you, is a senior fellow at the Gold Money Foundation, and he's the head of research there. Uh, his weekly articles uh, can be accessed from Gold Money, and I would highly recommend that you go there to read them. In fact, uh, it's usually after I've read one or two of his articles that I feel compelled to give him a call and see if we can coax him into coming on the show. Thanks for joining me again, Alistair. That's my pleasure, Jay. Oh, it's always uh, always so good to hear from you. Uh, I really want to talk to you today about an October 11th article that you wrote, The Credit Cycle is on the Turn. Now, we've talked to you about the credit cycle before. You've, you've gone through the anatomy of the credit cycle and uh, uh, pretty well convinced us that when we were going from the third phase to the fourth phase, uh, that we were nearing that, that phase now. And, and from this article, I gather you think that we are there. We're certainly starting the fourth cycle, I believe. But I, your lead, uh, you lead the article of October 11th uh, with the following comment. You say, we are on the verge of moving into an era of high interest rates, so markets will behave differently from any time since the early 1980s. There are enough similarities with the post Bretton Woods era of the 1970s to give us some guidance as to how markets are likely to evolve in the foreseeable future, end of quote. Now, I believe that we have had, if uh, memory serves me correctly, three business or let's say credit cycles, I'm going to call them credit cycles rather than business cycles, uh, since, 2000, since 1980, that's 1990, 2000, 2008, those are the ones that I recall anyway, with, with each cycle we have emerged with Lower interest rates, lower lows, lower highs. Each you know each cycle, that's what's been taking place. But am I to understand from your lead-in comments in that article that you are suggesting 
with the next cycle, we are now likely to see, uh, we are not likely to see new interest rate lows in the next cycle. You think we're going to start, the, the secular bull market in bonds is over, and we're heading into a bear market in bonds, a secular bear market perhaps? Yes, I think that's right, Jay. Um, the 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 reasons really, I mean, the reasons I sort of drew the parallel with uh, the late sixties, early seventies was that that was the time when the gold pool failed in London, and um, what was really behind it was uh, America had printed an awful lot of dollars for export. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you Americans didn't. Uh, uh, dip into your pockets and pay extra taxes to pay for the Vietnam War, oh, for that's example, right. That's right. Uh, or the Korean War, for that matter. Governments don't pay for wars by taxing people because they would never get the mandate to, uh, for, you know, to, to go to war. So uh, what do they do? They print the money. The money goes abroad. And in this case, I mean, we're talking about cash real cash. And um, of course, it was the old French Indochina was Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, so France, uh, through all its old connections, ended up with an awful lot of dollars. And it was France that decided, well, we don't want all these dollars. If you remember De Gaulle and Jacques Roeuf, his um, uh, uh, economic advisor, yes. were basically running the show at that stage. And they decided that uh, what they wanted is they wanted gold under the Bretton Woods uh, agreement. So they went for gold and dumped dollars. And the result was there was a run on um, central bank dollars and particularly the, the U.S. Treasuries, sorry, not dollars, the U.S. Treasuries gold. There was right. a run on that. Um, and uh, when that initially happened, we set up the London Gold Pool, that, which is basically other central banks coming in to try and, you know, suppress the price at 35 bucks. Uh, that failed. And then we had a few sort of um, uh, moments of trying to increase it. And they got it up to $42.22. And it was at that point in 1971 when Nixon turned around and said, we are suspending the Bretton Woods Agreement. We are no longer going to um, uh, supply gold in return for dollars. Uh, it was a temporary arrangement, and here we are all that time later <laughs> in this temporary arrangement. But the lesson behind it was a surplus of dollars in foreign hands. Now, at the moment, and this is a fascinating thing, everybody's talking about the foreigners not having enough dollars. But actually, when you look at the underlying numbers, that's not true. The foreigners have been financing the U.S., budget deficit for a considerable time. And the result is that they have got, um, you know, between U.S. treasuries and uh, equity investments uh, in America and all the rest of it, they've got dollar investments, which total, including cash, $22 trillion. Now, that was at the last record, uh, date of record, which was June 2017. Mm-hmm. I guess it's gone up since then because markets have risen, one. Yeah. And secondly, the uh, trade deficit from America has, um, you know, continued <laughs> and got yes. worse. So you can see that the requirement for foreigners to recycle dollars, uh, which they've earned from uh, uh, surplus exports, into U.S. Treasuries and similar things has continued. So we don't know what the number is, but it is enormous. And the last uh, figure we had, uh, that uh, uh, June 17 figure, uh, also included over $4 trillion of cash. And this is cash held in correspondent bank, bank accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So this is cash that exists, if you like, um, in, on, on the balance sheets of um, you know, the big banks in, in New York, the New York money center banks. Um, it also exists, if you like, uh, on the bank accounts, the dollar bank accounts of Deutsche Bank, of uh, uh, BNP, Banque Nationale de Paris, and all the rest of them, all around the world. So you can see that foreigners own an awful lot of dollars. And uh, just to remind you, that the $22 trillion is more than U.S. GDP. So... Um, the, the idea that there's a dollar scarcity in foreign hands is not true. What people are conflating is the fact that uh, some foreign governments and a lot of emerging markets uh, have borrowed in dollars and have liabilities to pay back in dollars right. in due course. But that's not an immediate issue. That is an issue which is going to be rolled over or maybe lead to a crisis in an individual country from time to time. And we've seen that you know, the countries which uh, have, have placed themselves in this mm -hmm. weak position, you know, their currencies have been undermined and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. That is just normal business, if you like, in this context. It's not evidence that the whole world is short of dollars. No, it is not. So uh, we have a situation actually where instead of being short of dollars, we are long of dollars in exactly the same way as we were in the late 1960s. All us foreigners have got too many dollars. And guess what's happening this time? This time, uh, America is going, becoming introspective. She's turning around saying, we do not want to have trade deficits with the Chinese and the EU and Korea and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. So what we're going to do is we're going to introduce tariffs. In other words, America is becoming introspective. She's going back into herself. Mm -hmm. This is going to have an effect on foreign demand for dollars in the future. And as well as that, there's another subject which you and I have discussed from time mm -hmm. to time, and that is that China is trying to replace uh, her cross-border trade with yuan rather than using dollars. And uh, her cross-border trade is now uh, really very enormous in a, in a global context because she's just about sewn up the whole of Africa. Uh, she's the largest trading partner for Australia. Um, she does an awful lot of trade with Japan, Korea, and places, countries like Chile and in Latin America and so on and so forth. I mean, she is absolutely enormous. So um, I, what I can see is that uh, things are sort of really potentially turning rather nasty for the dollar. And now we look at what's happening to the yields on the Treasury market. And in the article which you referred to, I showed a chart of the 10-year Treasury yield. And anyone who's um, you know, sort of got an elementary grasp of uh, technical analysis would look at that chart and say, good grief, that yield is going to go through the roof. <laughs> you know, I mean, you've got the moving averages, with the, the ones which are commonly used, they're in bullish sequence with a price above them, looking like it's just broken out of a previous high. And where's it going to end? Um, so you can see that there are a number of factors coming together to suggest there is a huge um, uh, turn, if you like, in the whole interest rate cycle. Mm -hmm. I can then go on from there and say, what this is, what what happens under these circumstances is you get a change of um, of attitude amongst investors. At the moment, everybody believes what the um, uh, uh, the government tells them about inflation. Inflation yeah. is at three percent. No, it's not. Inflation is closer to ten percent. If you look at a fixed basket of, of goods, it's That's around right. about ten percent. John Williams. Is, 
John yeah. Williams work. Yeah. John Williams and uh, and uh, Chapwood as well. That's that's mm-hmm. the other one. They do, they do um, a, a sort of a catch up every six months. But the reason this is important is let us assume that you are a business and uh, you are in the business of manufacturing and you th- you're thinking, well, um, I think we ought to invest in making a new product if we can do it profitably. And what you will do is you will look at uh, what's on the market at the moment and you will look at the prices today and you say, right, I think that if, if, if we can sell our new product and undercut that by a few cents, mm-hmm. I think we're on a winner. We should be able to shift some good volumes. So you start planning for this. You borrow the money. You assume that uh, where interest rates are, that uh, your money cost is not going to be all that great. You know what uh-huh. it is. You maybe build in a little bit of margin and so on and so forth. Uh, you know what the costs of the goods that you need to buy in to make your product are. And if you're terribly clever and you sort of think, well, you know, and we're told the rate of inflation is 3%, so, you know, we <laughs> might just add on 3%. Right. Um, but then you find that actually, because you're not uh, um, uh, buying your, uh, you know, the bits that you put together uh, out of a out of a, a moving basket, which um, you know sort of constantly ch- changes to lower the rate of inflation. You're actually buying the fixed basket. You're buying the things that are going up ten percent, mm-hmm. not a basket that's going up three percent. And you then <laughs> think, hold on a minute, this is not quite what we originally thought. Well, it's not <laughs> so working out well. You, you could see how um, suddenly this idea that, uh, you know, the CPI says it's 3% and we accept it, that can very, very rapidly change into an understanding that actually that's not true. And then it's not very far from there when you see, when you see the U.S. government getting into funding difficulties, which is almost certain because mm-hmm. of what they're trying to do, you then begin to think about the rate of inflation and you begin to think, well, um, you know, this is, uh, this is not good news, it's going higher. And it is quite possible that the person in the real world faced with buying a fixed basket of goods finds that instead of it being 10%, as John Williams and Chap would say, you're then looking at something maybe in the teens. And that then becomes very, very dangerous. And I think that's the sort of cycle cyclical dynamics that we face over the next few years mm-hmm. so i mean your thesis really has to do with uh, with the dollar the strength of the dollar uh, and the integrity of the dollar if you will and i you know I've, I've long wondered how can we continue to get away with these massive deficits and i've wondered this long before we were running trillion dollar a year deficits when we were running $100 billion a year deficits. I wondered, it seemed it seemed crazy. How could this be? Um, and now we're seeing, uh, you know, these these enormous deficits. And I have to wonder, you know, how, how are these treasuries going to be paid for? And you're talking about, now, if anything, if I'm hearing what you're saying, foreigners have plenty of dollars, but they have them locked up, a lot of them in treasuries. Now, if they have to start selling treasuries to finance their own growth or their own needs, Japan, for example, I think might be in that condition. With uh, Japan having, um, you know, Japan having the the demographics issues uh, even more than we have in the in the in the in the uh, in, in the West, yeah, uh, they they maybe are they having to sell their treasuries just to make ends meet in domestically, and 
Or, or how well, do you see the, this? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the Japanese are, are um, as, I think, a slightly special case because mm-hmm. their corporations um, do most of their manufacturing abroad, so uh, yeah. they're funding in different currencies and all the sure. rest of it. I think pro- probably um, uh, the best um, uh, country to look at is China because China is the largest um, holder of U.S. treasuries. Uh, she's got just over a trillion of them, and she's also got another. Two trillion of, of um, uh, reserves, most of which are cash dollars or dollars on deposit or whatever. That's part of that four trillion of cash that I was talking about. So uh, where, where is she in this? I mean, she's in the position where uh, America's being pretty unfriendly, to say yes. the least. Yeah. Um, and she has got her own plans and she's got to move on. She can't hang around. I mean, she's got uh, infrastructure development in, in uh, China itself. Uh, she's building new cities. I mean, the, the, the pace of technological innovation in China is truly staggering. I mean, it's exponential. And then she wants to go on and uh, repeat the same trick uh, throughout the Asian continent. I mean, we're talking roughly uh, just after just under half the world's population being tied up in this massive mega machine, which mm-hmm. America has no part in. Mm-hmm. And China is running the show and she's got too many dollars. So I can't see really that the foreigners in aggregate are going to continue to support the budget deficits of the United States by, uh, um, you know, sort of recycling their dollars. I think, if anything, they're likely to be sellers on the margin. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. this is why I think there is a funding crisis in the making. And this is why I have made a comparison with that situation in the 60s, which led to the failure of the gold pool. I mean, I just see exactly the same dynamics. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, in the 70s, we had oil crises after oil crises. But what do we have today? We have an oil price that's already doubled. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, who is the largest exporter of energy? Russia. Are they friendly? You've got Iran. Are they friendly? Um, at the moment, we don't have too much of a problem because America is, is uh, exporting shale oil and also consuming shale oil. Um, I mean, just that's been remarkably successful. But the problem with shale is that a, a, a shale uh, well has a very, very limited life, that's right. lifetime. That's right. And so, you know, you've got to continue to, to develop new ones. And of course, you know, the nature of things, what's happened is that you go for the best uh, prospects and you sort of leave the, you know, the not so, so good ones for later on. So the idea that um, uh, this output can be maintained by America, mm-hmm. I think, is being very optimistic, over-optimistic. I think, I think so. And you, ha- and you didn't even mention Saudi Arabia and the big question mark there right now in well, terms yes. of the relationships with the United States. And I, I see Mr. Putin was uh, didn't waste too much time in saying, uh, well, we're here if you need us. Uh, you know, we, 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 and, I, and it wasn't a, a true during the Obama years that the Saudis were talking to China about selling oil to China. And that was during the time when Mr. Obama had turned uh, towards the Iranians with the Iranian nuclear deal and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, it's, there's a lot, of, a lot of different things, a lot of moving parts. But you mentioned the infrastructure that China has. I think it was just today that I heard they had uh, just opened up a bridge, a 34-mile bridge between Macau mm. and Hong Kong. And I think yeah. one of the things we never focus on much on in America uh, is what's really going on with the one, one road, one bridge initiative that's going on, too. The massive infrastructure that China is putting in place, 
to trade with the Brit with some of the other countries mm-hmm. that are not necessarily all that friendly to the United States, Russia being one of them. Yeah. So, um, so, so this new petrol yuan thing that we talked about, that's, I mean, yes, I see there's many things. And really, your idea about inflation, I mean, I think that the, it, the real key is being able to see the dollar, potential dollar weakness. So, for example, you bring this issue up with many people, they'll say, yeah, but there's nobody else that has a, a currency with enough liquidity uh, mm-hmm. to become the world's reserve currency. How do you answer that, that criticism? Well, I think uh, it, it's an interesting one. I, the, the short answer is that uh, people who are looking at things that way uh, are running their forecasts on a linear basis. Actually, what's happening is exponential in China. And I think mm-hmm. that's the first thing. Things are happening a lot more quickly than you, you would think. The second thing, I would admit that uh, the recent weakness in the yuan has meant that the Chinese uh, have um, had to buy in yuan which has reduced the liquidity in international markets. So that has been a retrograde step for them. And I, I think that uh, if they are going to succeed, half succeed in their, uh, uh, in their objectives, then what they're going to have to do is to embrace a stronger currency, because a stronger currency will basically mean that imported inflation is lessened or blunted very substantially. And this is going to be important because uh, there are such large buyers of things like copper, nickel, um, cement, um, iron, all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those industrial materials, they're such enormous buyers that actually there isn't the supply there for them. They are going to drive up the prices in dollar terms. Mm-hmm. The question then is, Will they drive it up as much in uh, yuan terms? Mm-hmm. And given we're talking about infrastructure, domestic infrastructure, and infrastructure around uh, uh, her Asian neighbours, mm-hmm. I would have thought that it makes an awful lot of sense for her to switch over to a strong currency. And particularly if she signals a strong currency to all her trading partners, they will be a lot more likely to accept it uh, as um, in payment for raw materials or whatever uh, than they would. So I think there could be a big sea change from that angle as well, which nobody is expecting. Well, nobody's expecting. To what extent, though, do you think the uh, the capability of uh, of trading yuan for gold is important in uh, in giving the yuan credibility? I don't think at this stage that's terribly important. I think um, uh, monetary policy uh, and interest rate. Sorry. Exchange rate policy, if you like, uh-huh. um, is, is going to be far more important in the very short term. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, if, if you find that the yuan is going up, then as far as the ordinary citizen in Shanghai or Beijing or whatever uh, is concerned, he will, he will see gold as good value in his own currency. And I think that will sustain demand and probably continue to see the deliveries out of the Shanghai Gold Exchange, which are currently running at anything between 150 and 200 tonnes a month. I think that will be sustained, and on a strong yuan, it could even increase from that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so here we see uh, one of my guests uh, right before you was talking about uh, what the United States should do uh, with this caravan of some 10,000 people now. Oh, heading gosh, towards yes. the American border. And uh, Ryan Gudersky, my guest, suggested that what we should do is bring our soldiers home from Afghanistan and put them inside the Mexican border and stop these people from coming in. Well, I mean, I mentioned that now in, in our discussion simply because it seems to me Dwight Eisenhower was right 
the military-industrial complex. You know, Alistair, I can't think of any industry that's bigger for the United States right now than the military-industrial complex. And, uh, you know, President Trump immediately with this issue with with, uh, Saudi Arabia now uh, brought up the issue where we can't lose our arms sales to Saudi Arabia, to the Russians or the Chinese. Mm. So, uh, you know, I just wonder how this is, you, you just, there's so many moving parts here. And if we're talking about a country that needs to borrow from foreigners in order to sustain our military and our economy so that we can keep, what, grabbing their territory, keep the Chinese from having their access to their own sea lanes and things like that. I don't know, Alistair, it's a very, uh, a very unnerving <laughs> situation, a very unnerving picture I think you're safer there in the British Isles than I am here in New York City. (laughs) Well, uh, you mentioned Saudi Arabia. One thing that nobody has mentioned at all is the position of Israel in this. Um, Israel must be extremely worried. And I think that's actually more important in terms of uh, America's um, geopolitical uh, policy and and ours, for that matter, than um, just losing 100 billion of arms sales to Saudi Arabia by You know, whatever. Um, the other aspect of that, of course, is that if we stop supplying Saudi Arabia, then, um, as you mentioned earlier, Mr. Putin will be very happy to come in and Absolutely. do a deal. So, and, and that's something that we, I, I don't think our politicians would like to see. No, I don't think so. Well, we'll have to leave it go at that, Alistair. We're out of time. Thank you so much for being with us again. Uh, I would tell people to go read what Alistair is writing uh, at, at Gold Money. It's a very interesting article on Gibson's paradox that I think those of you who uh, are really into the financial markets will find very interesting. Alistair, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we'll look to do it again sometime, I hope, in the near future. That's very much my pleasure, Jay. Okay, well, thank you very much. Well, folks, uh, next week, Doug Noland a financial market analyst who works with the McIlvaney Group, will be with me. Uh, And I'm really looking forward to talking to Dr. Quentin Henning, who will be with me once again to update us on Novo Resources progress there uh, uh, at the Comet Well Project. Hopefully, he'll have some bulk samples to talk about next week when he appears on my show. Also, we do hope to have Michael Oliver with us once again. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow klondikegoldcorp.com.